Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM. Streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com where all our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. My co-host, Matt Robeson, publishes works about politics on the alternet and is the author of the blog, More Perfect Union Forum, Dot com where he takes a deep dive into politics. And Matt and I are really thrilled to have as our guest today, David Pepper. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about David Pepper, some that's in the official bio and some that are secrets that have just been revealed. David is the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. He was born and raised in Cincinnati. He served in city and county offices, run statewide in Ohio, has a law degree from Yale. Uh, unlike Dartmouth, Yale is a big school, uh, and there are many who love it. He's also an accomplished author of fiction, uh, including book, uh, books that, that are eerily prescient about American politics. He correctly foretold Russian interference in the 2016 election in his book, The People's House, causing some reviewers to say it was ripped from the headlines when it was written before the headlines, but did not create the headlines. And the only thing I'll say to David is in the year 2000, I wrote a, a work of um, a theater, uh, a musical with a cast of 35 called The People's House. David's third book, The Voter File, has just come out. One reviewer said, quote, Pepper comes through again with this clever tale of how cyber sabotage of elections, uh, coupled with uh, highly concentrated ownership of traditional media operations, can undermine American democracy. And that reviewer, ladies and gentlemen, was none other than our friend, former President Bill Clinton. And to top it off, David is a creative soul through and through. Uh, recently, in the past a few years at the instigation, maybe the past few months at the instigation of his two children, six and three, he has become an accomplished painter, uh, a medium of acrylics, specializing in lighthouses. So David Pepper, welcome to Off the Record. Thank you. Thanks for that very glowing introduction. I don't get those very often. Well, you know, you know, it's always good to, to have somebody glow over you while you're alive. It's much better than having to wait for your obituary. Uh, and we specialize in glowing introductions here on Off the Record. Um, so you're sort of uh, the Tom Clancy of politics um, instead of stealth submarines and wood fiber smart bombs, you've got election technology uh, and in your latest book, The Voter File, um, uh, you want to tell our listeners what your new book is about and, and tell us how you managed to wrap a story of high-tech espionage around a voter file. Sure. So my books are always attempting to be, you know, one foot in the real world of politics and the other foot in fiction. And the first book was, as you said, it was about a... a, a honestly, and I wrote it before a lot of it happened, it was a Russian oligarch rigging an American election. 
But I wrote it because I, I'm obsessed with ending gerrymandering, but I needed an exciting plot to highlight how bad gerrymandering is. Um, and that's sort of become my sort of MO is uh, tell a story that's a good page turner, but also something that informs readers about the real world of politics in a way that you, you I think, would both agree. A lot of political fiction just scratches the surface on how things really work, you know, whether it's scandal, whether it's, you know, you know other shows. My goal has been to actually both entertain and inform. The third book is, so the first book was all about gerrymandering and rigging an election. And I, I used to work in Russia. That's why I picked a Russian oligarch. Um, my third book is all about, um, the topic is the voter file, but it's sort of a worst case scenario. You know, we all know that emails were hacked in 16. We know that po uh, polling data might've been taken. But every once in a while in stories, there's also a, a casual mention that maybe the Russians got a hold of voter data. And this is the story of if someone really wanted to do damage to a campaign or a party in an election, we shouldn't casually mention voter data after we mention emails and um, polling, because the voter data is the crown jewel of the information that you would want if you wanted to create havoc. Uh, and so this is sort of the worst case, and this is why I think, um, Paul, um, Bill Clinton was probably scared so much by my book, because the crown jewel of a campaign, the game plan of how you win an election, is contained in the voter file and the database of all the voters that you have spent your entire campaign calling, targeting, categorizing, so you know by the end who's going to show up, who you want to show up, who you better persuade, who you hope doesn't show up, and this is sort of the worst case scenario if somebody were to heist that information and do ill will with it. And so that, that's the heart of the book. There's a lot of other things to it. And just to take a step back, in all of my books, the main character is a, a guy that you, you guys would like. He's sort of a down and out reporter for the Youngstown Vindicator. He's living the life of a mid-sized newspaper that's crumbling. So he's got to cover more than he ever has. Since he's older, he makes more money, so he slowly is kind of getting pushed away. In the beginning of this, so he starts out the first book, you know, a very down and out, jaded guy, but he finds this huge story that makes him famous. The second book, he's so famous, he's on TV. The third book, he gets canned because the TV station is a little bit like Fox News and he's too independent for them. And he's now a freelancer trying to do stories for a Youngstown Vindicator that was bought out and now won't even rehire him. And, and between me writing this book and now, the Youngstown Vindicator was bought out uh, and, and went under. So once again, I wrote something that came true. But so he's, he's this character that always is sort of, uh, not really almost intentionally, trying to find some stories to keep food on the table, but stumbles into these much bigger stories that, that you know, it's, he grabs the end of a, of a tiger, the tail of a tiger, and all of a sudden he finds himself in danger because he stumbled upon something very big. And he does that here through a strange election result in Wisconsin. He finds something that is much bigger and much more global in nature and all of a sudden the story goes from there. So it's a little about a lot you about know, journalism and a lot about campaigns and a good deal about monopolies too that we can talk about. You know, I, I think Tom, the Tom Clancy comparison that Paul made is really apt here. You know, for people who are looking for a really gripping summer read that also uh, is informative about some of the real mechanics that go into elections, 
um, th this is really the book for you. Um, and, you know, you alluded a second ago to the voter file, the importance of the voter file. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit more uh, about the behind the curtain aspect of what the voter file is, why it's so important, how it's used, and why it's so much more important today in our more modern technological environment on campaigns than it was, you know, even 10, 15 years ago uh, when some of us started more heavily getting involved in politics. Yeah, so in a way, sometimes the character Jack Sharp is reflecting me, and he sits down with this, you know, he gets a call from this woman in Wisconsin. He shows up in Wisconsin, and he's like, okay, what's the story? She goes, I'm the data director of a campaign. There's no way we won that campaign. There's no way. And he's like, how do you know that? Polling? She goes, no, no, no. I got a lot more information than that. And he, she walks him through the voter file, and he's shocked by how much is in it. That sort of reflected me when I became chair. I've always been a candidate. I never got into all the details. But when, when my staff started saying to me, here's all the stuff that's involved here, you know, like Jack Sharp, my memory is I used to knock on doors for city council 20 years ago. And my voter file was I had a little sheet of paper and I'd circle a number and I'd write the word YS, meaning they agreed to have a yard sign. And we'd go back and enter that in the database. And every candidate had their own little file but in the last 20 years, that has dramatically changed. And there's one very large file that basically every candidate in their campaign is buying a piece of. And now they spend their, essentially in one way, out, you know, outside of TV ads, an entire campaign can be thought of as you are always improving and polishing that voter file. So in the final few months, you literally buy the voter by both direct interaction and modeling, you know exactly the voters that you need to turn out to win. And you score them. But you also have all sorts of detail about them that you might have collected, but also was already on the voter file when you signed on to it. And so the point is, it's this very rich database. And, but it's not just a static database. It's your playbook. It's how you win. And in the final months of a campaign, you say to your data person, who are the turnout voters based on scoring that we need to have called three times or set digital ads to or, or done something else with? And they'll say, it's these 218,328 voters. It's that specific. And so, you know, but by the way, I think it's very important in the political world, you know, we're tough on private companies, on data. And one reason this book probably alarms people is they're thinking, I had no idea there was so much data on me in this file. And I think actually the political world needs to be as, and I don't, I'm not saying we're not, but as much as we expect private companies to hold data secure, one lesson in this book is we better do the same thing. There's a lot of data out there in these files. And whether it's signing in volunteers or other things, make sure this is secure because there's a lot of data. But beyond that, it also, and this gets a little bit into the Cambridge Analytica aspect of 2016 this data becomes the operating game plan of the end months of a campaign. And so if someone were to get a hold of it, they could, they could do a lot of damage. And in this case, I get somewhat creative as to how much they could do that damage. Man, oh man, oh man. You know, you're, uh, you're singing my song. Um, I'm involved in a campaign right now and working with the voter file and, uh, we hope that it that uh, that it's secure and that nobody's getting into it except me and my people. 
right? Because um, uh, you know I'm making all the phone calls, right? And you using the voter file, but so and whenever the numbers don't work, don't you wonder why? Why are all these numbers bad? Um, yeah, well, you know, for for my part, it's because uh, you know probably a lot of the people I'm calling, I I, I had on a list from my uh, congressional campaign in 2008 or my Senate campaign in 2010, and they've moved. They've died. They've exactly. disappeared. They've disconnected. People are giving up their landlines. It's hard for the you know hard to keep that that yeah. voter file uh, up to speed. But but so so you know what you're talking about uh, with all references to uh, our friend Tom Clancy aside, our our elections have all become much more high tech, which means they're much more vulnerable. Um, you know, after 2001, we were supposed to have upgraded a lot of our election infrastructure, but uh, apparently it's made us more vulnerable to hacks and meltdowns. We had a guest recently, Justin Levitt, uh, a scholar, a legal scholar, and as he pointed out, social media, big data, smartphones um, made, it, um, made it easier for us to be hacked in 2016. So while you're writing great fiction, and thrilling, thrilling reads, and you're writing to entertain, you're also pointing up some very important and real problems that we're having in our democracy. Is one of your goals to help people understand what's going on um, and to uh, make sure that we're, we're staying, we're, try, we're at least conscious to try to stay ahead of the problems? Yeah, it really is. And, and I, um... I almost wouldn't have thought that at first, uh, but that it would end up paralleling real life so much. But the the first book I wrote was literally this idea that no one outside of insiders knew anything about gerrymandering. And rather than writing a nonfiction book where I rant about gerrymandering that only people who knew about gerrymandering would read, I thought, well, maybe I'll write a, a fiction book that's accessible to far more than just insider Democrats it kind of makes people realize, wow, this is a real system and it's really bad. And, and again, as someone in the, as a book marketer would say, that's the a, a, a literature about gerrymandering. That sounds like the world's ho most horrible book idea. And I figured out, okay, I better wrap it in a really exciting plot or that's true. Uh, and so that's what I did. And my hacked election was about someone taking advantage of a gerrymandered map because only a few swing districts matter. Uh, and I knew I had accomplished my goal when my own brothers who are not political finished the book and said, geez, that gerrymandering's really bad. I said, success. And so I'm, and, and I think in, this is an age and you probably have seen this. It's tough right now for people to buy fiction. They wanna buy Mary Trump's book. They wanna know everything that's going on about the, the crisis in our country. So fiction is struggling and new fiction by new authors, I'm sure more, but my goal is to be half in the fiction world but people who read it aren't feeling like it's a guilty pleasure they shouldn't do because they're also feeling like whether it's gerrymandering or in my second book, it's all about dark money. It's all about what the Koch brothers could do and do that's legal. The third book's all about what we've talked about and, and the power of monopolies in our system. My hope has been to write books that both are entertaining, but people feel like I've learned more about the world and I need to know this stuff. And I've gotten a lot of good input from people who, I just got a letter today, the other day from an 85 year old woman who said, I love your book. And I feel like I know so much more about politics than I ever did. That's mission accomplished. Um, and the way to do that though, is to be really faithful to the way things really work. 
uh, because readers are really, they, they trust that I'm doing that. Uh, but it, when they're done, I think even this crazy time where people are actually trying to read as much nonfiction as possible, this book fills a niche that does both for them. And by the way, I also try and do it in a less partisan way. So it's not only Democrats, but actually Republicans who, who and I've had many people say this, wow, that gerrymandering is terrible. We need to end it. So I try and not hit people over the head as a partisan. And you all know that the main character is actually a disenchanted moderate Republican. So we're about to go to a break. And I'm going to give David a minute to think about the next question, because it's the stuff of nightmares. I am going to ask David after the break, what is it? What scenarios keep him up at night as the ultimate insider into the ways that democracy can be hacked? So that's where we're going next. Sound good? Sounds good. Sounds perfect. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLA and FM streaming live at nhtalkradio.com. We're talking with author and politician and chairman of Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper, about democracy and his books. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. You can revisit some of the great shows of the past. Try out the summit between Vladimir Putin and Comrade Trumpovich. Just for your listening pleasure, we're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And I, I offer that that Vladimir Putin impression here sometime we talk this way because we have with us as a special guest, David Pepper, a special author of political thrillers and Ohio chairman of Democratic Party, telling people about hacking. He trying to tell people in books about hacking elections in Amerikansky, but he doesn't really know. He cannot, I deny, I deny we did not do it. It never happened. And his book is pure fiction. So David, welcome back. We've had a little intrusive, a little intrusive interruption there from Vladimir Putin, who sometimes good. makes appearances on our show. Uh, but we're glad to have you back. And uh, I know Matt Robeson has a real question for you. <laughs> Well, speaking of nightmares, um, you know, about 15 years ago, the CIA actually asked writers like you for help in imagining some post 9-11 scenarios with Osama bin Laden. They needed people to think outside the box and be creative. So you don't need to give away the plot of your next book, which you may or may not have formed yet. But look, as we approach November, there are obviously lots of opportunities for our enemies or nefarious groups inside the U.S., to really undermine or twist the outcome of the election. So what scenarios worry you? Is there anything creative that people haven't really been thinking enough about yet? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I hate to say it, I'm not here to plug my books, but the ones that worry me most I've actually tried to capture in these books. In, in the first book, the key, and this is what Bill, so when Bill Clinton called, 
the reason Bill Clinton um, is in my third book is because after the first book, he called me up and said, hey, I loved your book. And we talked about it for a long time. And one of the key tells in the first book that something was up, but one that's very hard to trace, was the undervote, people skipping races. And we never know why. There's no study as to why someone might stop voting or not vote for this or that. And the way that they rigged the election in the, my first book is they just would systematically eliminate some percentage, but quite small, of undervotes somewhere down the ticket that no one would think twice was missing. And I, I worry, I mean, I, I, and if you look back at some of the most suspicious, weird things about 16, and this is what Bill Clinton asked me about, there is a huge number of people in Michigan who showed up to vote in the presidential election. There was no Senate or governor race, but they skipped the presidential in Detroit. And so when Clinton read my book about the undervote, he's, he says to me, you, what you wrote about worries me about this very strange fact that tens of thousands of Detroit Democrats showed up for presidential election, but no vote was tabulated in the presidential election when there was not a big reason down ballot to show up. So I think that that scenario worries me because it would be hard to find. Oh, actually, one of the, not to give away the first book, um, by the way, I love that you also had uh, something called the People's House that you created. Um, the way that Jack Sharp figures out that something is amiss in the first one is he compares the absentee ballots, which could not be hacked with these day of election ballots. And he, there's, there's this major statistical difference between the undervote of the unhackable uh, mail-in votes versus these others. And so one reason when, you know, not, I don't want to sound like everything I write I think is going to happen, but when you see Trump uh, appalled by mail-in voting, when that we all know is actually the, that, that almost that serves as a control group of what really is happening, when you have places like Georgia where they don't even have paper trail ballots anymore, it's all computer, that stuff, when you think about what scares me most, it's anywhere that is still voting without a paper trail. Anywhere that has that scares, scares me to death. Um, and, and all of a sudden, if you don't have vote, if you're getting rid of vote by mail and that's all you have, you don't even have a way to back check what's real and what's not. So that scenario scares me. Um, I do think as this book goes through, the scenario of, of um, you know, getting key voter data. You know, John Podesta wrote some things in emails he shouldn't have written. That created me a firestorm. But as the book makes clear, that is nothing compared to the value of much more rich voter data that I think you could cause major, major um, havoc in with a campaign. And the other thing about the, the, the other thing about this third book and, and the first book is, we all know that the levers of power in American politics go way beyond who the president is. This year, every state house election really matters because it will determine the congressional map for a decade. And so, uh, and, and you know, state Supreme Court races, if we win the majority in Ohio, we like Pennsylvania can get rid of gerrymandering. So there's huge power in all these races. And what also scares me is, and this is why I like to focus on in this book, a Wisconsin Supreme Court races, state race, state house races, that because these types of races have far less polling around them and far less attention, 
you can move 500 votes around, change the outcome, and no one will think anything of it because they don't know who's going to win anyway. Uh, and so I worry that, you know, I think it's harder to, to, to truly rig a presidential election when everyone's watching. But you get into, you know, races of 10,000 votes, you know, that's, that's kind of what this book does. You can change major policy and major uh, outcomes involving major amounts of power by focusing on places that, that even people are watching, they don't have any basis to judge the outcome is a problem because you're not polling most state house races. If someone was down five in a state house poll and pulled off a five point victory, no one's going to say anything but, oh, what a surprise. And so that's sort of the, the hidden potential of, of meddling where no one's watching. But the, what comes with that also obviously is, is a worry. Man, oh man. Well, I'm shaking in my political boots. <laughs> I'm thinking about, you know, the good news for us in New Hampshire is that we have paper ballots. Um, we uh, don't, do not have uh, uh, any significant in instances of voter fraud, contrary to what uh, President Trumpelfinski and our governor may have tried to persuade otherwise in, in, at, very, at various times. Uh, we currently uh, are allowing people to vote uh, absentee if they are concerned about COVID-19, although there is some lack of, of clarity um, around all that. Um, uh, so, you know, whether or not uh, there are active measures being done to suppress people from voting absentee, we can see that in the White House. Right. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that is going on uh, at our level in New Hampshire. Um, but I want to let's just switch focus for a, a moment, David, because you're chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. And uh, since 1964, Ohio has been a, an almost perfect, uh, maybe a perfect bellwether in presidential politics. It votes for the winner. Um, and that's one of those self-fulfilling prophecy things. As Ohio goes, so goes the nation. 18 electoral votes. Um, and it's it's a really crucial, crucial, crucial state. Right. Um, and it's been a pretty rough ride for Democrats in Ohio recently. Um, uh, my friend Sherrod Brown is, is hanging on, uh, but there is a 24 to nine margin in the state Senate the wrong way and uh, 61, 38 in the state house at the moment. Uh, so I, I, I'm not, we, we definitely don't want you to give away any trade secrets. No matter what I may offer you to do in terms of bribery, do not give away any trade secrets to anybody but me, please. But with that being said, um, and without revealing trade secrets, um, how are you folks doing? Uh, what are the Democrats thinking about? And uh, what are you doing to see if you can turn the tide? Sure. So I appreciate the question. And even in answering it, I'll tell you, don't let the gerrymandering fool you. In 2018, 50% of Ohioans voted for Republican for the state house and 49% voted for a Democrat. The gerrymandering is what leads to that dramatic mismatch in the state house. That's a rigged system. Congress, 52% Republican, 48% Democrat. What's our delegation? 12-4. Uh, it's rigged. That's why Jim Jordan gets to do what he does. It, it's not a good democratic system. Um, here's the real story in Ohio. Obviously, uh, 16 was what it was. Trump won 
uh, by too much here, just like he should never be winning a state like Wisconsin. And there are reasons for that that we don't have to go over. It was sort of the perfect storm and some really bad strategy where the Clinton campaign pulled out of most of Ohio, got swamped there in a way that Democrats, you just can't overcome losing most of your state 75-25. And, and there's a lot of lessons there. Uh, but we're a very different state now, uh, and I'll, I'll go through a couple of the details. The movement started almost immediately, we saw with the Women's March and others, where women, particularly in our suburbs, have abandoned the Republican Party. And the suburbs of Ohio are big. It's kind of like you always see the focus on, on uh, suburban Philadelphia. Outside of Cincinnati, Akron, Cleveland, Columbus, even Toledo, are that used to be the base of the Republican Party. It also add up to suburban communities. It's the single largest voting block in the state of Ohio. It's the only voting block that's really growing. About 27% of Ohio lives in these communities. This is where John Kasich and Bob Taft and Voinovich, this is where they won Ohio. It's now blue. It's not, it, most of this isn't even toss up anymore. It's blue and getting bluer. So if you rip away the Republican base from them and you leave them only with rural Ohio, all of a sudden the math in Ohio is very different. When the cities, when the suburbs buy enough to overcome the rural area, that's very different from having to win, which what we used to have to do, we had to win the cities by enough to overcome rural and urban. I'm sorry, rural and suburban. It switched in the, and here's how you can see it popping through in 18. Sherrod won in 18 by more than he won in 12. When Obama turned Ohio blue, we're not less red. People say we're more red than we've ever been. We were less red in 18 than we were the year Obama won in 12. We hadn't flipped a single state house seat all decade. They were gerrymandered so badly, we couldn't break through. 18, we flipped six state house seats that had been gerrymandered for Republicans in the suburbs. Races they never thought they would lose, we won in some cases by double digits, often with women winning most of those. We flipped two Supreme Court seats, and like I said, Congress and State House were close to 50-50. And, and, and so that shift doesn't guarantee anything in Ohio. We're close, but the starting point in Ohio to win, you've got a lot more going for you now. Joe Biden does, let's say, than John Kerry, who would have literally faced, I've got to run up such big numbers in the big cities to overcome everywhere else. It's no longer, it's no longer that, that's no longer the issue. Hamilton County, when I won a county commission seat in 06, First time we ever had a majority on the county commission here, at least 40 years. Now we're winning it hands down by a ton, more blue every single year. Uh, so you add all that up and it means that we, we have a shot at winning if we run a good campaign. Sherrod ran a good campaign, he won. On the governor's race, Mike DeWine ran a good campaign. He narrowed the gender gap by enough to hang on. And he's a 50 year name here. But Donald Trump will not be able to narrow the gender gap in the way that DeWine did. I mean, DeWine talked about how he'd done things with rape kits and sped them up as AG, and everyone in every ad was a woman. He was smart about it, but you don't do that, and all of a sudden, I think Ohio is very much up for grabs. And here's the other thing in Ohio that we really focus on this year. I know this is a longer answer you probably wanted. If we are blue, we end the Trump presidency, because as you said, you can't win Ohio without it. But we also, like Wisconsin recently, like... Um, Philadelphia, we also for the first time in decades have a majority Supreme Court of Ohio. And with that comes, just like Pennsylvania, the opportunity to end the world's worst gerrymandering. And so it opens up that those 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 legislation, those legislature mismatches you described, 
if we are able to be blue, we end the Trump presidency and we have a court that will strike down any gerrymander, and all of a sudden that dramatically changes the future of Ohio politics back to the swing state and the 50-50 state that we are in people but haven't been in terms of how we've elected people due to gerrymandering. That's all at stake this November here. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLA and FM, streamed live over the internet. We're talking with political thriller author David Pepper, who's also chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, a man of many talents. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this to see if David will sell me the movie rights to his latest book. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So as you get on the soon-to-be-bankrupt United Airlines and head off to wherever you can't get in because you're an American, remember you can always find us on your personal digital device on the podcasts, Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking to David Pepper chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party and author of sensational political thrillers. When we get off the air, David and I are going to discuss how I can buy the movie rights to his books because they're terrific and they're right on point with what's going on in our democracy today. David, we're so happy to have you. I'm going to turn it over to Matt for the next question. Thanks, Paul. All right, I'm going to ask the big question. The big question of the moment. I mean, David, Paul, you teased it right before the break. In, in your answer, it seems like, as you said, David, Trump can't win if he doesn't win Ohio, right? So if Biden wins Ohio, Democrats retake the White House. So you are the top expert we could possibly have on this question. Things are trending blue. Seems like the, you've gotten things into a pretty good position there. Now, the last two state presidential polls in Ohio in June show an absolute neck and neck race. Biden up one, according to Quinnipiac up to, according to Fox News. Fox News, not bad. What does Joe Biden need to do down the stretch in the next almost four months in order to win Ohio and win the presidency? So two things. One is, is you, you have to go back to the model of Obama and the model of Sherrod Brown, where you, you, it's three basic things. Get the city turnout and our urban turnout as high as it can be. And I think actually a vice presidential choice that is historic and reflects the diversity of our, our party is a big part of that for me, uh, but also just campaigning well, campaigning smart. And one of the best parts about our state right now is we have really strong African-American candidates running for Congress and county office in some of the places where we need the highest turnout. And these races are for prosecutor, for county commission, for Congress in Dayton, there'll be turnout because of our down ballot races as much as for presidential. Uh, that's one. Number two is just keep building on the growing margin in the suburbs. And number three is don't, don't avoid or assume you can't do much better in rural Ohio than, than happened in 16. Obama lost rural Ohio 60-40. That doesn't sound great. It's one of the reasons he won Ohio. He held the margins down. And these are parts of the state that a lot of them voted for Trump. It was a blowout. Part of it was the Clinton campaign literally didn't campaign there. If you don't campaign somewhere, they're not going to vote for you. And that happened, by the way, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, 
all these states, they basically thought they don't like her there. We're not campaigning there. It's not worth it. In places that Obama lost 60-40 across all these states became 75-25 blowouts. And in places like Ohio, there were not enough Democrats to overcome that level of loss. Don't blame 16 on Democrats knowing Trump, not showing up in Cleveland. There weren't enough to overcome it. And so you've got to go out to these areas and make a good case and lose them 60-40 or 65-35 like Sherrod does. And here's the good news. I mean, it's bad news, but politically good news. Trump's promises to them have all been broken. His policies have screwed over farmers in Ohio. Small towns aren't any better, in many cases worse off. GM closed a plant near Youngstown. Trump had told this community, not don't move, we're gonna save the day. When GM announced that they were closing Lordstown, Trump did nothing, then he blamed the workers, he blamed the UAW, then he said it doesn't really matter. So these places that, that were for Trump are seeing, we had our, just so to be clear on this, our worst jobs year since 2009 was 2019. Before the COVID crisis hit, 19, we'd lost jobs as a state. We lost manufacturing, we lost construction. So these places aren't gonna be won over by the everything's great message, even before COVID, it wasn't. And here's a little bit of a, and you all would know this from politics, and I'd like to talk about local races, Here's a little bit of the canary in the coal mine for Donald Trump if he thinks he's going to run up big numbers in these red areas. There are small towns in Ohio, and we, we focus a lot on local races. Ironton, near West Virginia. Coshocton, Central East Ohio. Norwalk, Northwest Ohio. These are small towns, 10 or 20,000 people. Trump won them each by 60, 40 or more. In 2019, we ran mayor candidates against incumbent mayors in these towns. We won in every one of those towns by 60, 40 or more. This small town called Ironton on the border of West Virginia, a 28 year old won that city 72 to 28 against a two term Republican incumbent. And I'd call up these mayors and say, whoa, whoa, what happened? Way to go. And their answer was, things aren't good here. People know it and we were changed. So I don't think we're gonna go back and win this in the presidential Ironton, hopefully we do. But if those places are throwing out incumbent mayors because nothing is working there to the good, it gives us a chance and Joe Biden a chance to go and talk to those voters and say, we get it. We want to win your vote over. We're here to help. And it means, again, this is the part that our goal is reduce the loss, but it means that we have a chance. If we're winning these races at the local level, there's no reason we can't win them to some degree in a Joe Biden versus Trump matchup. You do those three things well. And the final thing is I believe this election will come down to protecting the right to vote as much as getting out the vote more than any election we've ever seen. My fear is, and you'll see it in the books, the bigger the, the, the lead we have, the more Trump and the GOP will try and suppress the vote. They want every election to look like Atlanta did a month ago. Long lines, people scared of COVID, uh, walking away because it takes too long. So we are pushing very hard on protecting the vote, voting by mail, because I, the only way I think at some point they can win, if it continues to be bad in the polls, is to not have a normal election and to make it impossible for a lot of people to vote. So we have to fight that battle as much as fight to get the vote out. Uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating and, and frankly hopeful, but, but wait um, one moment. This is Vladimir Putin hacking into your radio show. Uh, my friend David Pepper, Comrade Pepper is, is speaking. I know he and I are very close. We are very close friends. 
because he is one of few American politicians who's had the 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 gohongas, you know, to sit across from me at the table. And this is very interesting, I think, to American voters because they they think they know me as the bare-backed horse rider, but they hardly know anything about me at all. So, Mr. Pepper, before we continue, perhaps you would tell the American voters of New Hampshire, how was it that you and I came to meet across the table and what were your impressions? I'm going to be very interested. Well, uh, thank you, uh, comrade, for the question. Um, so, yeah, I tweeted this the other day after one too many times watching um, Trump talk to Putin. And this does become sort of some of the, the substantive material that informs some of my books and my discussion of Russia. After college, my first job, I actually was a research associate and intern for Zbig Brzezinski at a place called CSIS in Washington, a think tank. Uh, you might have heard of it when you were in Congress. Then I, from that job, I went and became, I, I became a staff member of a, of a project that was helping, this was back when Clinton and Yeltsin were best buddies. We were trying to help St. Petersburg, Russia, the most progressive and Western city in Russia, develop the basics of a market economy and a rule of law. And the mayor at the time was this wonderful guy. He had stood up against the efforts to roll back reforms. He was the former law school dean. He wrote the Russian constitution, a real reformer. Everyone thought he'd be president someday named Anatoly Sobchak. He was the co-chair of our commission to help St. Petersburg. And our goal was to bring best practices. And I was about 22 to 24 years old when all this was happening. But where this goes to a, a nice story about a, a job out of college to a sort of Forrest Gump running around Russia, the, the, the vice mayor of the city was a 40-something young, four, like 42, 43-year-old guy who was so different from all the other Russians. Sobchak would give a, an incredibly moving toast. The others were all big personality, funny, charming, like you, you, you really likable folks. And then there was this very quiet and serious, and I'm no, I, no offense of Vladimir about what I'm gonna say, this quiet and very serious minded fellow that was assigned to be the point person to our project. And it was uh, Deputy Mayor Vladimir Putin. And at the time, he literally was the guy of the group that you'd forget about among these very big charismatic figures. Uh, but as I tweeted the other day, that was a mistake for me and probably part of his MO that I thought that because two years into these meetings where he would always set up our meetings and make the trains run on time, he had never spoken a word of English in, in the way that you are now. And two years into our meetings, one day with an interpreter always with us, and I spoke a little Russian, she messed up a word that she was translating from Putin to us. And it wasn't a simple word, it was a complicated word. He heard it in English, knew she said it wrong, and he corrected her English. And that's in English. And that's when we thought, okay, I mean, I did. This guy's been speaking English for two years. We never knew it. He's heard everything we've said, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I, I said, all, I tweeted a long tweet, tweet, tweet thread that got a lot of attention on this. By the way, I got an email the other day from a Russian television station that wanted to interview me. I looked it up and it was literally Russian defense industry television. So I have not accepted the interview. Um, but the point is that when I watch Donald Trump have his phone calls and have his ridiculous meetings and kick the interpreter out and ruin her and tell her not to keep the notes, knowing what I saw, 
he's getting played at every meeting. Everything he's doing is being recorded. Not only do I believe there's compromise from his past, I think every one of these meetings ends up being basically compromised, compromising material that could be used against him at every future point. So this guy's a real operator. He's clearly very savvy. And every time he and Trump talk, I, I saw from our interaction, he is playing him in a way that, that frankly, in the end is very dangerous for us and hopefully ends as soon as possible. But yeah, it was an interesting, um, interesting time. That is just to bring our conversation full circle. Yeah. I, I just want to point out that, that the scene that you just described is literally a Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy moment from the sum of all fears, where it turns out the Russian leader is a perfect English speaker and Jack Ryan reveals it in a meeting. Yeah. So you really are the Tom Clancy of political thrillers. Right. Um, and by the way, in my, I, first know, book, I, I, in my first book, I have a scene just like this with my Russian where I try and capture the moment where a whole room figures it out. Um, so yeah, it's uh, amazing. It, it was a wake up And to lean into some of your expertise on Russia and on foreign affairs in general, I, I mean, I do want to point out that Mitt Romney, as you probably recall, was widely mocked by Democrats in 2012 for calling Russia our top geopolitical threat. But here we are eight years later, and he's not sounding so far off. I mean, you know, I want to ask what your sense of this is. I mean, now that Putin has essentially had himself installed as president for life, since the Mueller report makes it totally clear that Americans were attacked by Russian military units, specifically 26165 and 74455, the report actually lists the units and now we have very credible intelligence that Putin's Russia has been paying bounties to the Taliban to kill American service members. How big a threat today is Russia under Putin and how worried should we be? So I, let me just say, we have a, a few minutes. So I don't, I, mean, I hate to cut you off, but our show's only an hour long. So we have right. about three or four minutes oh, no, okay. for comprehensive answer. So it's hard to sum it up. I, I'll just first say it's really sad that we've gotten to this point because back when I was working there, the hope was we could have better. There are a lot of Russians that I know that are great people. And as you hopefully you could hear me say that. Uh, I think Putin, um, uh, in the end of the day, my answer is they're a real threat, but I also think they respect strength. I think they did not want Hillary Clinton in office because they knew she would be strong. And if you are strong, I actually think you're at a much better point to have the kind of negotiation to get somewhere. What they want is weakness. And so when they see Trump, they see weakness. They see someone who's a joke and they can run over him. So I think the best thing America can do to get to a better place is to have a strong leader that they will respect when that leader stands up to them. They want a sucker. They want weakness. And, and I sense that when I would meet with Henry Kissinger was involved in our work. They actually respected, they thought of Kissinger as tough and big. You could get somewhere negotiating Kissinger Putin. Uh, you can't if they think they've got you, which they've got us. So I think if you, if you put into place someone like a, a Biden and have some tough people around him, you're not going to, they won't like it. But less than offending them, you'll actually have someone that they'll see as an equal that they have to actually deal with seriously. So I think long term, the strength, strength on our end is a way to get somewhere versus Trump is doing exactly what they want. He's weak. They've got him by the you know what's. And that's exactly what they want. And that's why they wanted him to win. It's not that they didn't like Hillary Clinton. They knew she'd be tough and we need to be tough again. And I think hopefully if we're tough, we actually get somewhere. 
This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes with occasional hacking from Vladimir Putin. We've been talking with David Pepper, uh, author of political thrillers. His latest is called The Voter File. Pick it up. Read all his books. His first book was called The People's House. He is a remarkably creative and politically astute guy, chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. David, thank you so much for joining us. We'll, um, I'd love to have you back and talk some more uh, because you are a smart fella and Vladimir Putin knows it too. So it's off the record with Paul Hodes. Matt Robeson will be back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. Well, Matt, we had a great conversation with David Pepper, a very smart and creative guy, an author, a painter, a politician, a pundit. He, he covers all the bases for us, and he even can go toe-to-toe with Vladimir Putin. After all the scenarios he outlined about what keeps him up at night, I'm not going to be sleeping anytime soon. Definitely recommend the books unless you're hoping to sleep at night. So folks, pick up uh, one of or all three of David Pepper's books, including The People's House and The Voter File. You'll learn a lot about politics and get some real insight into how the dirty deeds are really done. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on KXL. Thanks to our sponsors who keep this great station on the air. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.